Since you've made it this far, you must be enjoying this book, and that makes me so happy. You deserve to sleep well every night, so be sure to check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed where you'll find exclusive bonus episodes. That way, you'll never run out of stories to put you to sleep. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. As always, I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad you could join me tonight. This evening, we'll be continuing with Journey to the Center of the Earth. But before we do, go ahead and make sure you're nice and settled into bed. Once you're there, take a deep breath in and sigh it all back out. No matter what kind of day you had, good, bad, or somewhere in between. It's all behind you now. The only thing left to do is relax and get some much-deserved rest. We all fall asleep on our own time and in our own way, so whatever your path to sleep looks like, I hope this story helps you get there tonight. In our last episode, The professor was in a foul mood, annoyed that the sea was so much wider than he had anticipated and that they weren't making enough downward progress. In an effort to confirm the distance and speed at which they were traveling, they dropped an anchor and let the line run out. But when they pulled it up, they noticed huge teeth marks in the metal. Alarmed, Harry began to imagine the type of prehistoric reptiles that could be lurking beneath them, much like in his vivid dream. The party attempted some sleep, but were awoke by an enormous jolt. They had collided with a huge black mass, which then moved away from them. Two massive sea beasts surrounded the raft, but were not threatening the travelers. Instead, they were in combat with each other. The three men watched in awe as the battle commenced, unable to move out of the way and hoping not to capsize. The professor identified the monsters as an ichthyosaurus and a plesiosaurus, two of the largest aquatic dinosaurs known to man. Eventually, the beasts disappeared below the water until the head of the plesiosaurus arose, separated from its body. Finally safe again, the next day they continued their journey as monotonously as before until they reached an island with a huge geyser in the center, which they named 
Harry's Island. And so we continue with our story tonight. Harry and the professor deducing that they were now directly below England and continuing onward. So relax and close your eyes as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 32 The Battle of the Elements Friday, August 21st This morning, the magnificent Giza had wholly disappeared. The wind had freshened up, and we were fast leaving the neighborhood of Harry's Island. Even the roaring sound of the mighty column was lost to the ear. The weather, if under the circumstances we may use such an expression, is about to change very suddenly. The atmosphere is being gradually loaded with vapors which carry with them the electricity formed by the constant evaporation of the saline waters. The clouds are slowly but sensibly falling towards the sea and are assuming a dark olive texture. The electric rays can scarcely pierce through the opaque curtain which has fallen like a drop scene before this wondrous theatre on the stage of which another and terrible drama is soon to be enacted. This time, it is no fight of animals. It is the fearful battle of the elements. I feel that I am very peculiarly influenced, as all creatures are on land, when a deluge is about to take place. The cumuli, a perfect oval kind of cloud piled up on the south, presented a most awful and sinister appearance, with the pitiless aspect often seen before a storm. The air is extremely heavy, the sea is comparatively calm. In the distance, The clouds have assumed the appearance of enormous balls of cotton, or rather pods, piled one above the other, in picturesque confusion. By degrees, they appear to swell out, break, and gain in number what they lose in grandeur. Their heaviness is so great that they are unable to lift themselves from the horizon, but under the influence of the upper currents of air, they are gradually broken up, become much darker, and then present the appearance of one single layer of a formidable character. Now and then, a lighter cloud, still lit up from above, 
rebounds upon this grey carpet and is lost in the opaque mass. There can be no doubt that the entire atmosphere is saturated with electricity. My hairs literally stand on end, as if under the influence of a galvanic battery. If one of my companions ventured to touch me, I think he would receive rather an unpleasant shock. About ten o'clock in the morning, the symptoms of the storm become more thorough and decisive. The wind appeared to soften down, as if to take a breath for a renewed attack. The vast funereal pool above us looked like a huge bag, like the cave of Aeolus, in which the storm was collecting its forces for the attack. I tried all I could not to believe in the menacing signs of the sky, and yet I could not avoid saying, as it were involuntarily, I believe we are going to have bad weather. The professor made me no answer. He was in a horrible, a detestable humor to see the ocean stretching interminably before his eyes. On hearing my words, he simply shrugged his shoulders. We shall have a tremendous storm, I said again, pointing to the horizon. These clouds are falling lower and lower upon the sea, as if to crush it. A great silence prevailed. The wind wholly ceased. Nature assumed a dead calm and ceased to breathe. Upon the mast, where I noticed a sort of slight will-o'-the-wisp, the sail hangs in loose, heavy folds. The raft is motionless in the midst of a dark, heavy sea, without undulation, without motion. It is as still as glass, But as we are making no progress, what is the use of keeping up the sail, which may be the cause of our perdition if the tempest should suddenly strike us without warning? Let us lower the sail, I said. It is only an act of common prudence. No, said my uncle, a hundred times no. Let the wind strike us and do its worst. Let the storm sweep us anywhere it will. Only let me see the glimmer of some coast, of some rocky cliffs, even if they dash our raft into thousands of pieces. No, keep up the sail, no matter what happens." These words were scarcely uttered when the southern horizon underwent a sudden and violent change. The long accumulated vapors were resolved into water, 
and the air required to fill up the void became a wild and raging tempest. It came from the most distant corners of the mighty cavern. It raged from every point of the compass. It roared, it yelled, it shrieked with glee, as of demons let loose. The darkness increased and became indeed darkness visible. The raft rose and fell with the storm and bounded over the waves. My uncle was cast headlong upon the deck. I, with great difficulty, dragged myself towards him. He was holding on with might and main to the end of a cable and appeared to gaze with pleasure and delight at the spectacle of the unchained elements. Hans never moved a muscle. His long hair, driven here and there by the tempest, and scattered wildly over his motionless face, gave him a most extraordinary appearance, for every single hair was illuminated by little sparkling sprigs. His countenance presented the extraordinary appearance of a true contemporary of the Megatherium. Still, the mast holds good against the storm. The sail spreads out and fills like a soap bubble about to burst. The raft rushes on at a pace impossible to estimate, but still less swiftly than the body of water displaced beneath it, the rapidity of which may be seen by the lines which fly right and left in the wake. The sail, the sail, I said, making a trumpet of my hands and then endeavoring to lower it. Let it alone, said my uncle, more exasperated than ever. No, said Hans, gently shaking his head. Nevertheless, the rain formed a roaring cataract before this horizon of which we were in search, and to which we were rushing like madmen. But before this wilderness of waters reached us, the mighty veil of cloud was torn in twain. The sea began to foam wildly, and the electricity produced by some vast and extraordinary chemical action in the upper layer of cloud was brought into play. To the fearful claps of thunder, were added dazzling flashes of lightning, such as I had never seen. The flashes crossed one another, hurled from every side, while the thunder came, pealing like an echo. The mass of vapor became incandescent. The hailstones which struck the metal of our boots and our weapons 
were actually luminous. The waves as they rose appeared to be fire-eating monsters beneath which seethed an intense fire, their crests surmounted by cones of flame. My eyes were dazzled, blinded by the intensity of light. My ears were deafened by the awful roar of the elements. I was compelled to hold on to the mast, which bent like a reed beneath the violence of the storm, to which none ever before seen by mariners bore any resemblance. Here, my traveling notes become very incomplete, loose, and vague. I have only been able to make out one or two fugitive observations jotted down in a mere mechanical way. But even their brevity, even their obscurity, show the emotions which overcame me. Sunday, August 23rd. Where have we got to? In what region are we wandering? We are still carried forward with inconceivable rapidity. The night has been fearful, something not to be described. The storm shows no signs of secession. We exist in the midst of an uproar which has no name. The detonations, as of artillery, are incessant. We are unable to exchange a word or hear each other speak. The lightning never ceases to flash for a single instant. I can see the zigzags after a rapid dart strike the arched roof of this mightiest of mighty vaults. If it were to give way and fall upon us, what then? Other lightnings plunge their forked streaks in every direction and take the form of globes of fire which explode like bombshells over a beleaguered city. The general crash and roar do not apparently increase. It has already gone far beyond what human ear can appreciate. If all the powder magazines in the world were to explode together, it would be impossible for us to hear a worse noise. There is a constant emission of light from the storm clouds. The electric matter is incessantly released. Evidently, the gaseous principles of the air are out of order. Innumerable columns of water rush up like water spouts and fall back upon the surface of the ocean in foam. Where are we going? My uncle still lies at full length upon the raft, without speaking, without taking any note of time. The heat increases. I look at the thermometer. To my surprise, it indicates. The exact figure here is rubbed out in my manuscript, 
and cannot be read. Monday, August 24th. This terrible storm will never end. Why should not this state of the atmosphere, so dense and murky, once modified, again remain definitive? We are utterly broken and harassed by fatigue. Hans remains just as usual. The raft runs to the southeast invariably. We have now already run 200 leagues from the newly discovered island. About 12 o'clock, the storm became worse than ever. We are obliged now to fasten every bit of cargo tightly on the deck of the raft or everything would be swept away. We make ourselves fast too, each man lashing the other. The waves drive over us so that several times we are actually underwater. We had been under the necessity of abstaining from speech for three days and three nights. We opened our mouths, we moved our lips, but no sound came. Even when we placed our mouths to each other's ears, it was the same. The wind carried the voice away. My uncle once contrived to get his head close to mine after several almost vain endeavors. He appeared to my nearly exhausted senses to articulate some word. I had a notion, more from intuition than anything else, that he said to me, We are lost. I took out my notebook, from which, under the most desperate circumstances, I never parted and wrote a few words as legibly as I could. Take in sail. With a deep sigh, he nodded his head and acquiesced. His head had scarcely time to fall back in the position from which he had momentarily raised it, than a disc or ball of fire appeared on the very edge of the raft. Our devoted, our doomed craft. The mast and sail are carried away bodily, and I can see them swept away to a prodigious height like a kite. We were frozen, actually shivered with terror. The ball of fire, half white, half azure-colored, about the size of a ten-inch bombshell, moved along, turning with prodigious rapidity to leeward of the storm. It ran about, here, there, and everywhere. It clambered up one of the bulwarks of the raft. It leaped upon the sack of provisions, and then finally descended lightly, fell like a football, and landed on our powder barrel. Horrible situation. 
An explosion, of course, was now inevitable. But heaven's mercy, it was not so. The dazzling disc moved on one side. It approached Hans, who looked at it with singular fixity. Then it approached my uncle, who cast himself on his knees to avoid it. It came towards me as I stood, pale and shuddering in the dazzling light and heat. It pirouetted round my feet, which I endeavoured to withdraw. An odour of nitrous gas filled the whole air. It penetrated to the throat, to the lungs. I felt ready to choke. Why is it that I cannot withdraw my feet? Are they riveted to the flooring of the raft? No. The fall of the electric globe has turned all the iron on board into lodestones. The instruments, the tools, the arms are clanging together with awful and horrible noise. The nails of my heavy boots adhere closely to the plate of iron secured in the wood. I cannot withdraw my foot. At last, by a violent and almost superhuman effort, I tear it away just as the ball, which is still executing its gyratory motions, is about to run round it and drag me with it. Oh, what intense, stupendous light. The globe of fire bursts. We are enveloped in cascades of living fire, which flood the space around with luminous matter. Then all went out and darkness once more fell upon the deep. I had just time to see my uncle once more cast apparently senseless on the flooring of the raft, hands at the helm, spitting fire under the influence of the electricity which seemed to have gone through him. Where are we going, I ask? And Echo answers, where? Tuesday, August 25th. I have just come out of a long fainting fit. The awful and hideous storm still continues. The lightning has increased in vividness and pours out its fiery wrath like a brood of serpents let loose in the atmosphere. Are we still upon the sea? Yes, and being carried along with incredible velocity. We have passed under England, under the Channel, under France, probably under the whole extent of Europe. Another awful clamour in the distance. This time it is certain the sea is breaking upon the rocks at no great distance. 
Chapter 33 Our Route Reversed Here ends what I call my journal of our voyage on board the raft, which was happily saved from the wreck. I proceed with my narrative as I did before I commenced my daily notes. What happened when the terrible shock took place? When the raft was cast upon the rocky shore, it would be impossible for me now to say. I felt myself precipitated violently into the boiling waves. And if I escaped from a certain and cruel death, it was wholly owing to the determination of the faithful Hans, who, clutching me by the arm, saved me from the yawning abyss. The courageous man then carried me in his powerful arms, far out of the reach of the waves. He laid me down upon the burning expanse of sand, where I found myself sometime afterwards in the company of my uncle, the professor, Then he quietly returned towards the fatal rocks against which the furious waves were beating in order to save any stray waifs from the wreck. This man was always practical and thoughtful. I could not utter a word. I was quite overcome with emotion. My whole body was broken and bruised with fatigue. It took hours before I was anything like myself. Meanwhile, there fell a fearful deluge of rain, drenching us to the skin. Its very violence, however, proclaimed the approaching end of the storm. Some overhanging rocks afforded us a slight protection from the torrents. Under this shelter, Hans prepared some food, which, however, I was unable to touch. And exhausted by the three weary days and nights of watching, we fell into a deep and painful sleep. My dreams were fearful, but at last... Exhausted nature asserted her supremacy, and I slumbered. Next day, when I awoke, the change was magical. The weather was magnificent. Air and sea, as if by mutual consent, had regained their serenity. Every trace of the storm, even the faintest, had disappeared. I was saluted on my awakening by the first joyous tones I had heard from the professor for many a day. His gaiety indeed was something terrible. Well, my lad, he said, rubbing his hands together, have you slept soundly? Might it not have been supposed that we were in the old house on the Königstrasse? that I had just come down quietly for my breakfast, 
and that my marriage with Gretchen was to take place that very day. My uncle's coolness was exasperating. Alas, considering how the tempest had driven us in an easterly direction, we had passed under the whole of Germany, under the city of Hamburg, where I had been so happy, under the very street which contained all I loved and cared for in the world. It was a positive fact that I was only separated from her by the distance of forty leagues. These forty leagues were of hard, impenetrable granite. All these dreary and miserable reflections passed through my mind before I attempted to answer my uncle's question. Why, what is the matter? he asked. Cannot you say whether you have slept well or not? I have slept very well, was my reply. But every bone in my body aches. I suppose that will lead to nothing. Nothing at all, my boy, said he. It is only the result of the fatigue of the last few days. That is all. You appear, if I may be allowed to say so, to be very jolly this morning, I said. Delighted, my dear boy, delighted, my uncle replied. I was never happier in my life. We have at last reached the wished-for port. The end of our expedition, I asked. No, but to the confines of that sea which I began to fear would never end, but go round the whole world, he answered. We will now tranquilly resume our journey by land and once again endeavor to dive into the center of the earth. My dear uncle, I began in a hesitating kind of way, Allow me to ask you one question. Certainly, Harry, a dozen, if you think proper, said he. One will suffice. How about getting back? I asked. How about getting back? What a question to ask, he remarked. We have not as yet reached the end of our journey. I know that, I replied. All I want to know is how you propose we shall manage the return voyage. In the most simple manner in the world, said the imperturbable professor. Once we reach the exact center of this sphere, either we shall find a new road by which to ascend to the surface or we shall simply turn round and go back the way we came. I have every reason to believe that while we are traveling forward, it will not be close behind us. Then one of the first matters to see to will be to repair the raft, was my rather melancholy response. Of course, 
We must attend to that above all things, continued the professor. Then comes the all-important question of provisions, I urged. Have we anything like enough left to enable us to accomplish such great, such amazing designs as you contemplate carrying out? I have seen to the matter, and my answer is in the affirmative, my uncle said. Hans is a very clever fellow, and I have reason to believe that he has saved the greater part of the cargo. But the best way to satisfy your scruples is to come and judge for yourself. Saying which, he led the way out of the kind of open grotto in which we had taken shelter. I had almost begun to hope that which I should rather have feared, and this was the impossibility of such a shipwreck leaving even the slightest signs of what it had carried as freight. I was, however, thoroughly mistaken. As soon as I reached the shores of this inland sea, I found Hans standing gravely in the midst of a large number of things laid out in complete order. My uncle wrung his hands with deep and silent gratitude. His heart was too full for speech. This man, whose superhuman devotion to his work, I not only never saw surpassed nor even equaled, had been hard at work all the time we slept, and at the risk of his life, succeeded in saving the most precious articles of our cargo. Of course, under the circumstances, we necessarily experienced several severe losses. Our weapons had wholly vanished, but experience had taught us to do without them. The provision of powder had, however, remained intact after having narrowly escaped blowing us all to atoms in the storm. Well, said the professor, who was now ready to make the best of everything, as we have no guns, all we have to do is to give up all idea of hunting. Yes, my dear sir, we can do without them, I replied. But what about all our instruments? Here is the manometer, the most useful of all, and which I gladly accept in lieu of the rest, said he. With it alone, I can calculate the depth as we proceed. By its means alone, I shall be able to decide when we have reached the center of the earth. But for this little instrument, we might make a mistake and run the risk of coming out at the other side of the earth. All this was said with a smile. But the compass, I replied, without that, what can we do? Here it is, safe and sound, he said with real joy. 
And here we have the chronometer and the thermometers. Hans has proven himself invaluable. It was impossible to deny this fact. As far as the nautical and other instruments were concerned, nothing was wanting. Then, on further examination, I found ladders, cords, pickaxes, crowbars, and shovels all scattered about on the shore. There was, however, finally the most important question of all, and that was provisions. But what are we to do for food? I asked. Let us see to the commissariat department, replied my uncle gravely. The boxes which contained our supply of food for the voyage were placed in a row along the strand and were in a capital state of preservation. The sea had in every case respected their contents, and to sum up in one sentence, taking into consideration biscuits, salt meat, shidem gin, and dried fish, we could still calculate on having about four months' supply if used with prudence and caution. Four months, said the sanguine professor with glee. Then we shall have plenty of time both to go and to come. And with what remains, I undertake to give a grand dinner to my colleagues back home. I sighed. I should by this time have become used to the temperament of my uncle. And yet, this man astonished me more and more every day. He was the greatest human enigma I ever had known. Now, said he, before we do anything else, we must lay in a stock of fresh water. The rain has fallen in abundance and filled the hollows of the granite. There is a rich supply of water, and we have no fear of suffering from thirst, which in our circumstances is of the last importance. As for the raft, I shall recommend Hans to repair it to the best of his abilities, though I have every reason to believe we shall not require it again. How is that? I asked, more amazed than ever at my uncle's style of reasoning. I have an idea, my boy, he said. It is none other than this simple fact. We shall not come out by the same opening as by that in which we entered. I began to look at my uncle with vague suspicion an idea had more than once taken possession of me, and this was that he was going mad. And yet, little did I think how true and prophetic his words were doomed to be. And now, he said, having seen to all these matters of detail, to breakfast. I followed him to a sort of projecting cape 
after he had given his last instructions to our guide. In this original position, with dried meat, biscuit, and a delicious cup of tea, we made a satisfactory meal. I may say one of the most welcome and pleasant I ever remember. Exhaustion, the keen atmosphere, the state of calm after so much agitation, all contributed to give me an excellent appetite. Indeed, it contributed very much to producing a pleasant and cheerful state of mind. While breakfast was in hand, and between the sips of warm tea, I asked my uncle if he had any idea of how we now stood in relation to the world above. For my part, I added, I think it will be rather difficult to determine. Well, if we were compelled to fix the exact spot, said my uncle, It might be difficult, since during the three days of that awful tempest I could keep no account either of the quickness of our pace or of the direction in which the raft was going. Still, we will endeavor to approximate to the truth. We shall not, I believe, be so very far out. Well, if I recollect rightly, I replied, Our last observation was made at the Giza Island. Harry's Island, my boy. Harry's Island, he reminded me. Do not decline the honor of having named it. Given your name to an island discovered by us, the first human beings who trod it since the start of the world. Let it be so then. I replied. At Harry's Island, we had already gone over 270 leagues of sea, and we were, I believe, about 600 leagues, more or less, from Iceland. Good, said my uncle. I'm glad to see that you remember so well. Let us start from that point, and let us count four days of storm during which our rate of traveling must have been very great. I should say that our velocity must have been about 80 leagues to the 24 hours. I agreed that I thought this a fair calculation. There were then 300 leagues to be added to the grand total. Yes, and the central sea must extend at least 600 leagues from side to side, he continued. Do you know, my boy Harry, that we have discovered an inland lake larger than the Mediterranean? Certainly, and we know only of its extent in one way, said I. It may be hundreds of miles in length, He nodded. Very likely. Then, said I, after I calculated for some minutes, if your provisions are right, we are at this moment exactly under the Mediterranean itself, 
Do you think so? He asked. Yes, I am almost certain of it, I answered. Are we not 900 leagues distant from Reykjavik? That is perfectly true, and a famous bit of road we have traveled, my boy, said he. But why should we be under the Mediterranean more than under Turkey or the Atlantic Ocean? Can only be known when we are sure of not having deviated from our course, and of this we know nothing. I do not think we were driven very far from our course, I said. The wind appears to me to have always been about the same. My opinion is that this shore must be situated to the southeast of Port Gretchen. Good, I hope so, he replied. It will, however, be easy to decide the matter by taking the bearings from our departure by means of the compass. Come along, and we will consult that invaluable invention. The professor now walked eagerly in the direction of the rock where Hans had placed the instruments in safety. My uncle was happy and light-hearted. He rubbed his hands and assumed all sorts of attitudes. He was, to all appearance, once more a young man. Since I had known him, never had he been so amiable and pleasant. I followed him, rather curious to know whether I had made any mistake in my estimation of our position. As soon as we had reached the rock, my uncle took the compass, placed it horizontally before him, and looked keenly at the needle. As he had at first shaken it to give it vivacity, it oscillated considerably, and then slowly assumed its right position under the influence of the magnetic power. The professor bent his eyes curiously over the wondrous instrument. A violent start immediately showed the extent of his emotion. He closed his eyes, rubbed them, and took another and keener survey. Then he turned slowly round to me, stupefaction depicted on his countenance. What is the matter? said I, beginning to be alarmed. He could not speak. He was too overwhelmed for words. He simply pointed to the instrument. I examined it eagerly according to his mute directions, and a loud cry of surprise escaped my lips. The needle of the compass pointed due north. In the direction we expected was the south. It pointed to the shore instead of to the high seas. I shook the compass, examined it with a curious and anxious eye. It was in a state of perfection, 
no blemish in any way explain the phenomenon. Whatever position we forced the needle into, it returned invariably to the same unexpected point. It was useless attempting to conceal from ourselves the fatal truth. There could be no doubt about it, unwelcome as was the fact that during the tempest there had been a sudden slant of wind, of which we had been unable to take any account, and thus the raft had carried us back to the shores we had left, apparently forever, so many days before. <laughs> 